Welcome to the Autism and Neurodiversity Podcast. We're here to bring you helpful information from leading experts and give you effective tools and support. I'm Jason Grigla, a licensed counselor and founder of Techie for Life, a specialized mentoring program for neurodiverse young adults. And I'm Debbie Grigla, a certified life coach. And maybe most importantly, we're also parents to our own atypical young adults. Friends, hello, welcome. We are excited to have Dr. Ingrid Bovida with us today. She's a psychologist based in Salt Lake City, Utah, and she's also um, licensed with SIPAC, so she can practice in 30 other states. And she specializes in neurodevelopmental assessments with individuals on the autism spectrum or who are neurodivergent. And she recently published an article for the Journal of Therapeutic Schools and Programs about diagnosing females on the autism spectrum. And so we're really excited to have her with us to discuss this topic because I think there's just so much more we can understand and um, learn about for for females that are neurodivergent. Um, I know there's a lot of challenges with getting them diagnosed and and with late diagnoses. So we're super grateful to have you on the show, Ingrid, and thanks for being with us. No, I'm super excited to be here. I'm, I'm glad for the invite. Yeah, we met you a few weeks ago at a conference, and we happened to be presenting the same time you were presenting, and I was really disappointed that I couldn't jump in on your presentation on autism and females. And I I guess I just want to know from the get-go, why why females and autism? Why are you interested in that? What's What's the issue there? Um, so that topic wasn't something that like I went to grad school being curious about. I mean, even when I started practicing independently, it was something that wasn't really on my radar. Um, it became something, uh, of a passion project for me because just in my clinical work, going into different residential, uh, programs or wilderness therapy programs, uh, I was noticing, I you know, working with adolescent girls, um, that there was something different about them. Often, I would get a therapist or parents that would say, you know, she's quirky, or there's something different about her, or she may have processing issues, and I really need you to help flush this out. Um, and just over time, I mean, you start collecting kind of all this experience and you're thinking, you know, what is going on here? Um, And, you know, then I was invited to write an article for uh, the journal. And that's really when it kind of started coming together. Um, And and I said, you know, let's, let's see how my experiences match up to what the research literature is saying. And I was like, wow, you know, there's some information, but just not a whole lot out there at the same time, especially for parents to be able to digest, I guess. Mm -hmm. So while we're talking today, when we talk about females, we're talking about biologically born female. Yeah. Adults and teenagers. And that that's one area that hasn't been maybe looked at or researched as well. I'm wondering, uh, maybe you have some insight on that is if, if they are transgendered. Um, if there's much research on male to female and autism diagnoses, but that's a totally different topic. I just wanted to clarify as we talk today that that's what we're discussing. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Biological assigned female at birth. Nice. Okay. 
So I want to be clear. So the, the numbers are pretty clear that males are way more often diagnosed with autism and even ADHD and other neurodevelopmental disorders. What's going on there? What What's your assessment? What are you seeing? Um, well, one way to think about this is the idea of sex differences within diagnoses is not new, right? Like you, you had mentioned ADHD is much more often diagnosed in males, um, even within the medical field, you know, multiple sclerosis is most more often diagnosed in females. Uh, and in, you know, within this topic, autism is, you know, the rate of diagnosis is, uh, I mean, the literature varies, but about four boys for every one girl that is diagnosed with autism. And so it's a pretty, you know, glaring ratio. And I think people are trying to figure out, you know, is it that we are missing um, or misdiagnosing these girls? Um, or is it just, you know, that they are in some way um, biologically less likely to develop uh autism traits. And so, you know, researchers kind of uh, vary in, in what their theory is, but um, we're noticing, and there's a lot of growing evidence to suggest that girls look different when they are on the spectrum. So the diagnosing might be a part of it. I, I guess I'm curious, what's your sense? Is there actually, not what's diagnosed, but is there, do you think there's equal numbers, male to female, autists or do you think there's probably more males that are actually autistic? Do you have a sense on that at all? Yeah. I think that there are a lot more females than we realize. I don't, I haven't given thought to how it stacks up against males on the spectrum. Um, but we are missing these girls and we're misdiagnosing them with a personality disorder or, some sort of behavior-based uh, kind of diagnosis, like oppositional defiant disorder, um, and you know we're not we're, we're just not putting the pieces together. And I think it's because the way that the, the classification system that we use to diagnose people as being on the spectrum or not, the criteria were primarily based on male uh, research samples. And so if you look at, you know, the autism research that informed the diagnostic criteria, the vast majority of them are males. And so, you know, arguably the criteria that we use to diagnose uh, is, is what males on the spectrum look like. Now, certainly there's females that, that present similarly, um, but many, many more that don't. Yeah. So we are, we are missing a lot of females we're not identifying them and then not giving them appropriate accommodations and support because we're viewing them through the wrong lens, possibly a behavioral lens. And so this is, it's an important thing if we want to be able to improve outcomes for potentially females that are neurodivergent and struggling. And so what are you seeing as how it looks different in females? So there's a few there's a few key differences. Um, in general, what what we're seeing, and, and I'll kind of stick to, you know, what I'm seeing that the literature has also kind of supported, um, females on the spectrum are, in general, much more socially motivated. And so we think about the stereotype of boys on the spectrum where they are indifferent 
to social relationships, don't see the point in friendships. Uh, and girls on the spectrum actually really want to make uh, friends. And even when at, in, at younger ages, so you know, early elementary school, they can make friends. Um, they are very social. They might even, you know, parents have told me she was real popular. She's gregarious, charismatic. People like her. Um, but then kind of late elementary and starting to get into junior high when the social environment just becomes a lot more complex, we start seeing issues uh, with making and keeping friends. So a lot of kind of friend jumping, um, new friend group uh, more frequently. Um, in general, they, you know, because they're more socially motivated, they also engage in a lot more verbal and nonverbal social behaviors. And so, you know, again, we think of the stereotype of autism spectrum disorder as being, you know, poor eye contact or poorly modulated eye contact. And, you know, these girls can generally make eye contact appropriately. They, you know, know not to stare or not to completely avoid eye contact. But one thing that I've found really useful is asking them, you know, what is your experience of eye contact? You know, is it uncomfortable? Where did you learn to make eye contact? And, and a surprising amount of the girls I've worked with will say, well, I, I copy my friends. Or when we're talking about boys, you know, we use certain hand gestures. Or when we're gossiping, you know, we use hand gestures. So there's a lot of mimicking behaviors in an effort to kind of fit in and camouflage. Um, and it's a lot easier to do when they're younger. Um, they are also way less likely to, ex to exhibit these sort of repetitive behaviors that we think of when we think of autism spectrum disorder, like body rocking. Um, and so, uh, and then when they do have these kind of more intense uh, circumscribed interests, they tend to be more towards traditional, uh, what we think about as cisgender topics. And so social media influencers, anime, books, makeup, horses, right? Whereas, you know, one of the sort of litmus tests that a lot of psychologists use for diagnosing a, a boy on the autism spectrum is, you know, are they, do they like weird things basically? Um, and so if we're thinking, oh, you know, so-and-so's interests are perfectly normal, they're just a, a bit intense, we might, again, we might be missing what's going on. Um, and so I, I would say those are the biggest differences. Um, and they just, you know, it, they blend in for, for quite a while as children. And then as they get into adolescence, that's more often than not, that's when I uh, that's when parents start noticing that there are issues. How do you, how do you differentiate between like, like someone that's neurotypical that has those interests that you described and then someone that's neurodivergent? Like I'm, I'm, I'm curious, like what, how it looks different or how you differentiate that? Yeah, that's a really good question. So we, I, I look at the intensity of the interest, right? And so just as an example, and you know, a lot of my close friends know I'm a total anime video game geek. <laughs> and so, but I also recognize that, you know, a lot of other adults, I don't just assume everybody's into anime and video games. And so, nor do I have the time to really 
play them or watch them. But anyways, so, um, but I also am socially aware enough to know not everybody wants to hear about Legend of Zelda. Not everybody wants to hear about this or that anime. Um, so I'm kind of looking for, if somebody says I'm really into anime, that's when I can kind of open up and say, oh, me too. Um, and so and also that that happens to be your interest probably helps you relate to oh, totally. young people because <laughs> that is a very common interest oh. for, for a lot of them, at least with our students that we see. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, that, that's one of the biggest differences. And so you'll see, you, you'll have parents that will say something like, well, she will talk at me, not with me. Uh, about this topic, or she's constantly pestering me to buy her the next book collection or the next, you know, whatever to collect. Um, she, you know, her friends were coming over for sleepovers and she would just talk to them about this and not, and then they just wanted to go home. So just kind of the behaviors that stem from this is a really intense interest and this, you know, female does not quite know how to regulate how, how and when and how much to talk about it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Kind of like the info dumping. Exactly. Yes. Unloading their interest on you and not having a conversation. Not. Yeah, exactly. Okay. That makes, yeah, definitely. So I remember going to my first presentation on females and autism, and I remember hearing them talk about masking. Yeah. And how females tend to be better at masking and all of the things that they were good at masking were all the things I was working really hard at my school here, Techie for Life, to get our students to do. And if they're able to do those things and function, then I was thinking that was a big win and success because then they could function in the adult world. And then I'm philosophically, I'm thinking, okay, if there is functioning and they're masking really well, why does there need to be a diagnosis? And I, I think I've learned, and, and you can jump in here, but yeah, masking is the behavior, but it's not original. It's not organic. It's not coming from an internal place of who they really are. And the dysfunction for them, it might look different than the dysfunction for a typical male autist where their dysfunction becomes becoming overwhelmed and anxious and depressed and then suicidal, and then maybe self-harm, cutting issues like that, where you know, maybe they're acting, acting out different, but their dysfunction is there, but it looks different than our males. I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So you bring up a really great point and a good way of thinking about this idea of masking. Masking is when a girl on the spectrum, you know, engages in certain behaviors. The biggest one is mimicking, like we just talked about, to try and blend in so they don't stand out as being different, right? Because again, they're very socially motivated. Um, part of the problem with that is that, like you said, it doesn't come from an internal place, right? So the hand gestures that they might have be mimicking from their peers isn't natural. And if you stop and think about when you're having a conversation with somebody, they're naturally kind of moving their hands around for emphasis. Um, it's that natural integration of verbal and nonverbal that I definitely look for. And oftentimes on the spectrum, that integration is completely absent, but we're finding that for girls, it's there. It just looks really artificial. Um, they're not 
applying it in a natural way. And the problem with masking is that it is such a conscious effort and it is exhausting. And so oftentimes what I'll also have parents tell me is that they can hold it together just fine at school or, you know, all throughout school and after school activities. But then as soon as they get home, they melt down when I just ask them to put their backpack away. And it's like, well, yeah, you know, they, they have been, you know, trying to fit in and, and that doesn't come naturally. So it, it's an information overload for your brain to try and keep track of all those pieces that finally, when they come home, it's like, they're exhausted. Um, but yeah, a lot of multitasking going on. I mean, I'm thinking of like, if I'm trying to, Oh yeah. A gesture that I'm supposed to do, but then like maybe missing stuff in the conversation. And then I'm like caught or confused. I mean, I could just imagine that there's a lot they're trying to navigate and yeah. 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 And it's not that neurotypicals never have to mask. We, we have to fake it till we make it sometimes. It's not that we never come home from work and have had an exhausting day. It's that it's outside of the normal bell curve. It's that the limits are pushed to such an extreme that it's a constant headache, heartache, falling behind stress. And, and that's why the diagnoses might even be necessary is, and maybe that's a question for you is, if, if a young woman, teen or, or adult is actually functioning and they're surviving and they're managing it, is there even a need to get a psyche valve, even if people suspect that they might be autistic, if everything's going fine? Yeah. Well, oftentimes by the time that the topic of psyche valve is even coming up, it's because things are not going fine. And so even if for one reason or another, they are functioning reasonably well in adulthood, there's usually kind of secondary issues that are going on, um, like depression, anxiety, um, eating disordered behaviors, um, you know, issues navigating kind of the uh, nuances of romantic relationships or a relationship between you and your boss. Um, and so sometimes we don't, when I get a referral for testing, it's not so much that somebody says, I think this person might be on the spectrum more often, because again, we, we miss these girls we're, and women, we're getting um, the secondary symptoms, you know, the depression it has gotten worse over the years, or there's disordered eating, or I think they have borderline personality disorder because they just can't manage their relationships and they're scared of abandonment and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and so, you know, more often than not, even if autism or any kind of neurodivergence is not front and center in the referral, you kind of start digging deep and you, you find that, that that's kind of one of the root causes. Of yeah, we love on. the idea that if anyone is struggling that an autism diagnoses should be the immediate first rule out or neurodivergency in general, so that you don't go down the road of typical mental health and behavioral interventions, which aren't effective at all. Um, so that's something, and, and I love psychotherapy yeah, for yeah. someone who's neurodivergent. Um, and, I, and we totally support the idea of getting diagnoses for the purposes of managing and bettering a life. And I, I think you said it just right. So, well, and one of the things I want to point out too, is like if, if you are suspecting as a parent that there's something different, yeah. your kiddo, 
what I, what we've seen a lot at our school is, you know, a lot of kids that are neurodivergent or they're autistic, they do okay. But if there's like another big stressor in their life, that's what sends them over the edge. So if they have like a friend that bullies them, you know, or rejects them, a major rejection. Or, or a friend who commits or suicide. A friend that commits suicide. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or adoption. Or, or a parent divorce. Or job. Um, some kind of thing that, that just is so much more that they, that just adds so much more stress and it really comes out. And if you've got a, an earlier diagnosis, you can be able to be supporting. Yeah. Yeah, a young person in ways that support their neurodivergent mind, and then when those stressors come up, it's it's going to be probably a lot less traumatic, and you're more prepared and ready, and they've, they've gotten the supports beforehand before the big huge stressor, and then everything falls apart, and it's hard to come back from that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think about too the, you know, we we sort of have two different camps. The I don't want to put my kid in a box or, or label my child camp, but we also have the camp of you know, I, I just need to know, and we need to know so that we have a better understanding of how to help, you know, our, our child. And so, um, and, and I've found just in, in my clinical work that all of the girls and, and young women that I've diagnosed as being on the autism spectrum, when we sit and kind of talk about what's going on, I've never had one of them say, I don't like this, or this makes no sense. I've had the opposite. I've had the, this makes so much sense. And now that I'm looking at this from the lens of being neurodivergent or being on the spectrum, I see that my lifelong difficulties or why even as a little kid, I, you know, I felt like I didn't quite fit in, but I sort of passed well enough. I see why now or why I was missing certain things when hanging out with my friends, um, you know, why I was being bullied. It, it, the, the pieces start to just fall into place and fit. And then they have a paradigm to be able to think and, and process really what, you know, what I would argue is kind of a, a new identity a little bit or a new part of your identity. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. You can see I'm, I'm a, a woman on the autism spectrum, right? I'm not broken. I just have a different brain and, well, damage, and I'm a part of that kind of. The damage we see happening all the time with males and females is when people assume too yeah. much about their motives and about their weaknesses. And when it's a neurological difference and it's not about try harder or being lazy or just being defiant and so many of previous generations approaches to modification, behavior modification, yeah. because they were so much more focused on performative accomplishments than quality of life, that things have just adjusted and changed. And it's just, it's just getting better. Yeah. Um, and I'm grateful for this, for this change and this shift and this focus. I, I agree that there's a lot of females out there that are underdiagnosed that really could use the information and so I, I love that you're talking about it. Yeah. No. So I'd like to have you talk about just some of the um, the areas for specifically females that are autistic that can be a struggle to to manage with it, whether it's um, being too controlling or passive, or you know, increased risk for being victimized sexually or those kinds of things. I think that's because that's important to know, especially for our females. Yeah. Um, 
recognizing where those weak spots are going to be and what they're, what they're needing, their supports that they're going to be needing. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you're bringing up a really good point. Um, one of the other areas that we're, you know, seeing when it comes to working with girls on the spectrum is that they are having issues managing conflict. And some of that has to do with how girls, adolescent girls and young women uh, engage in conflict. A lot of it is nonverbal, right? Like rolling their eyes or closed off, you know, body language, um, gossiping, spreading rumors. These are, you know, as opposed to kind of getting in your face and being very literal about it, um, these are things that are very difficult for a girl on the spectrum to pick up on because they are very nuanced. Um, and oftentimes what we find is because they want to fit in, they don't want to turn away any friendships. They're kind of passive, passive, passive. But then, you know, there are things that are going on that their friends are doing that are irritating, right? And they don't quite know how to bring it up in an appropriate way. And so eventually it's like, you know, the, the pot boils over and they just get really assertive, um, and then feel bad. And you can tell that their friend, you know, took it offensively. And then they don't have this, the social skill to be able to repair that relationship. Um, and then, you know, the other thing that we're seeing too, is that the rate of sexual victimization is extraordinarily high. Um, now, you know, it, it goes without being said, right, that when you're an adolescent, you start to develop um, curiosities and feelings, right, about sex and romance. You know, it's like you watch the, you know, movie with a romantic scene, and it kind of takes on a whole new meaning. And you're wondering, oh, what's that like? Um, and, you know, part of the problem is that, uh there's a, a lack of sexual knowledge. And oftentimes teenagers get a lot of information about sex from their friends. But if you're having issues making and keeping friends by that point, you just have fewer peers to kind of consult with, right? And, and I'm not saying that peers are necessarily the best source of information about sex, um, but that's just who adolescents go to. Um, and we're also seeing that because these girls are engaging in a lot of mimicking behaviors, they are sometimes inadvertently mimicking gestures or language um, that sends the message of I'm available um, or I welcome, you know, sexual or romantic advances. Um, and so, you know, they, they might inadvertently be sending, I guess, the wrong message, um, mimicking flirting behaviors uh, when they are not intending to. Um, and they also, you know, tend to be overly trusting. And so I get a lot of girls that are online on social media, they go to a chat room and because the person in the chat room said, you know, uh, I'm, you know, uh, underage too, and you're so beautiful. And if you send me, you know, explicit pictures, you know, all these great and wonderful things will happen. Um, and they're just not realizing the inherent danger in, in doing that. So they're putting themselves in, in situations that are extremely risky. Um, and so a lot of, you know, uh, intervention around that, a lot of that has to do with, you know, safe internet, uh, behaviors, right. Um, 
you know, and, and figuring out like what's an appropriate outlet for, or, or information source for this kind of natural curiosity that comes up as an adolescent. Yeah. I think that, I think if you're aware that, that that can be a potential issue and how your daughter might interpret things and, and be reading the situation, there's a lot of front loading that can be done. And I, I think a lot of moms tend to go to the totally over, like, just want to protect and keep their daughter from having any interactions, but that actually sets them up to be even probably more in danger because they're not getting that practice. So it's, I think the front loading and having conversations around it and practice and pointing things out and yeah, it's we, going to be a lot more effective than just like keep yeah. them locked in their bedroom and never go out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think when a boy acts out, he might, he might do something physical, maybe behavioral, but when a girl starts acting out, some of those are pretty extreme dangerous quickly, like, like sexual behaviors or self-harm behaviors with the cutting tends to be more female than male. And and those are really serious, really quick. Extreme, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and some of it is too, um, you know, girls on the spectrum are sort of like, like most teenagers, arguably, they're looking for a frame of reference, right? And so a lot of them look to TikTok, you know, or social media influencers and trying to sort of imitate what they're doing. Um, And so, and so, you know, you run into a lot of trouble when your friends, you know, are starting to have romantic relationships or express a romantic interest. And, you know, the girl who's neurodivergent is going to say, well, I, I should have that too. Um, but, you know, they haven't given a whole lot of thought to, you know, what are my values around romantic relationships and sexuality? What are my boundaries? How will I know when I'm crossing a line um, from this, this feels okay to this is totally not okay. Um, and one thing that came up when I was doing a, you know, the literature search for that article was that there are a lot of girls that didn't know that saying no was an option or that saying yes, and then saying no was an option or that not saying no, but being kind of uncomfortable and sort of freezing is a sign that you're not comfortable with what's happening. And maybe you should say something, um, so I think predators can sense girls who are easily intimidated and taken advantage of. And I, we are very protective here of our girls. And at the same time, because they're adults, it's really hard to protect them. And the best that we've been able to do is keep a really great relationship where they'll come and talk to us and say, Hey, this seems off. Remember we had that life skills lesson last month where you talked about this. I just had this experience can we talk about it? I mean, that's, that's the best I can do because if they don't talk to us about it, it's hard. Absolutely. So I, I really, we hit that hard, that relationship of influence, especially with 18 and older, because they're not ready to act like they're 21, but they are certainly put in the situations where they're faced with 21 year old problems and and questions. So. Absolutely. Yeah. And you're never afraid to, to get specific and. (laughs) Yeah, we're, we can't we're very assume that they understand or know. We have to ask questions and we've got to yeah. be nuanced in these conversations, but actually just really lay them out. And I think these girls yeah. can actually learn and, and you know get it if we're more specific and clear. And <laughs> Yeah, no, you, you actually bring up a really good point. And I've seen this in relation to when I interview 
uh, girls that are on the spectrum is that you do have to have a conversation or ask questions in a very concrete manner. And so, you know, even asking uh, someone, you know, have you ever been a victim of sexual abuse or sexual assault or whatever, they might not exactly understand what that means or what, what my personal definition of abuse or assault is might be something entirely different. And so just being extremely clear, you know, has somebody ever done anything, you know, to you that you did not feel okay with? What were those things? I didn't say no. So it wasn't, it wasn't rape because I never said no. So it wasn't rape. Right. There's that black and white thinking too, with like, well, you know, and my counter to that is always, well, you didn't say yes either. Right. So much of that consent is nonverbal. I mean, I've told people this before, you know, in a romantic relationship, people don't ask each other explicitly, do I have your consent to do X, Y, or Z? It just, you just kind of feel it out. Um, And so, you know, whenever girls on the spectrum say, well, you know, I don't think that this was rape because they didn't, I didn't explicitly say no. I just kind of laid there and and froze and was uncomfortable. I'm like, well, you also did not explicitly say yes. Um, I like it when parents are really blunt and black and white with, with boundaries. Like I hope that before you ever have sexual relationships, you will make sure that we meet that boy because if he cares about you enough to to have you let him into your, into your life physically and sexually that, that you'll want him to meet us. And then they're like, Oh, so before I have sex, he yeah. meets the family and it's very black and white and it's followable. And then they have information and that's what they need is information. So. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a good point. So what are some advice, if you have any advice for parents, what, what are you wanting them to do? What are you seeing as possible patterns that they could avoid? Any suggestions for parents dealing with a young adult or a teen that is diagnosed with autism or might be diagnosed and, and they're female? Or you're suspecting. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, definitely if there's a suspicion, um, you know, you, you definitely have to go seek out, you know, some sort of consultation or testing. Um, you know, I, I think because these girls are so difficult to identify, you can't just meet with a pediatrician and say, you know, this is what I'm seeing that's kind of different or quirky about my daughter and expect them to know. Um, so you really need somebody that understands how girls might present differently than boys on the spectrum and is able to evaluate uh, your daughter. Um, and oftentimes I'll get therapists or parents that reach out and they just they just want to have a conversation. Um, here's what I'm seeing. Is this no big deal? And I'm just worrying excessively or is this something that you'd say, yeah, there might be something here. And, and I'm very honest and, and upfront. I certainly don't want people to get testing when it's not needed. Um, but I also don't want parents to potentially miss something. Um, and so definitely, you know, consulting and and getting an evaluation. Um, But I've always valued this idea of like, it takes a team. And so if your daughter has received an autism diagnosis, you know, the recommendations are really just dependent on where their struggles are. Um, But oftentimes they do end up 
kind of having a, a coach that sort of helps them with social skills in a more informal you know, setting. Um, and it kind of builds on what they're learning in therapy. Um, and I keep going back to just right after you get that diagnosis and it's kind of this aha moment, it takes some time to really process it. And it's helpful to have somebody to talk to, to be able to you know, even just reflect back on, on your experiences and your struggles, but also areas where you have excelled, um, or, you know, you've thrived in places where your peers are like, uh, you know, feel like they're a few steps behind. Um, and so just, and that helps with kind of identity, uh, development. Um, but, but yeah, so I, I think about just what are the, the professionals that, that can kind of come in and provide vocational support or educational support, therapeutic uh, support, um, coaching, um, and then also just, you know, helping parents wrap their heads around a diagnosis um, and, uh, and how to work with a child that is neurodivergent, right? I mean, nobody, you know, when your child is born, nobody gave you the manual on how to parent your specific child, right? Um, but you sort of have the wisdom of, of everybody before you and, um, and you kind of roll with it as you go, but parenting a child that's neurodivergent, especially when it's a female and we just don't we don't have the established kind of literature and, and stuff really that you can just Google, um, you know, uh, it, it's worth kind of helping um, parents understand, you know, how, how do I work with my specific child? And that does take some coaching as well. Right. Yeah. I agree. And, and to get those supports, you don't have to do it alone. No, 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 absolutely not. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. <laughs> like there's exactly. our good supports out there. And yeah. We can improve outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Dr. Boveda, thank you so much for joining us. I would love to hear or have you tell our listeners how they can get a hold of you, how they can reach you. I think did you share her email in the beginning? No, I'll put her I'll put your email in our show notes, but if you if you want to tell us what it is too on here. Yeah, absolutely. So I started a practice called the Hive Psychological Services, and it's really based off of this idea of, you know, it takes a team, right? So my input is, you know, no more valuable than the input of a parent, a therapist, a coach, um, you know, a consultant, right? Can I just say, I really appreciate that because, you know, years ago when our boys were younger, I I would go in to, to get help. And sometimes the way I was treated was just, oh, Unreal. I'm like, I live with this. Yeah. <laughs> you think you know more than I do. And it was, it was, it was hard. It was hard they as were, a mom to feel like I'm not being heard or listened to. Yeah, and, very patronizing. And then to go to someone that actually listens, you're like, Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Debbie, like it, you know, I, I tell parents, you know, your child and I know children. And so you have a lot of input and without your input, I literally cannot do my job well. Um, without a therapist talking with me, if the, if the child has a therapist on what they've been working on, what are kind of the ongoing struggles that they're kind of hitting a, a you know, a, a wall with in therapy, you know, I, uh, I need to know that I can't do my job well, unless I have these key pieces of information. Um, so yeah, so I, I started, you know, my own practice. Um, I do testing in, 
uh, residential wilderness therapy programs, but also, you know, in people's homes, if, if the child's not in a, in a program. Um, and probably the easiest way to get a hold of me is by email. And so that is Dr. Bovida, and I will spell that out, uh, Dr. Bovida at protonmail.com. So D-R-B-O-V-E-D-A at protonmail.com. Thank you. I, just as a personal note, we invite guests on when we know that they get it. And after talking with you for quite a while, we just knew that you got it. And so you, you don't just know children, you also get it. And there's, there's not a lot that do there's, there's, there's some, and we just really appreciated your insight. Well, and even just watching you interact with our students and how you really connected very quickly and knew how to connect. I think that's huge. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And anyway, and you you can tell you care. So I, I yeah. So thank you for what you do and who you are. And we've been thrilled and and grateful to have you on. Of course. Yeah. I really appreciate the opportunity you guys. And and that makes my day that you guys see that. Like I, I really want to help. And so, um, so I appreciate you guys giving me the, you know, space to be able to spread this information. Thanks so much. All right. Well, we hope everyone has a great week. And if you've got a female that you're, you're wondering, we really highly encourage you to, to seek out some second opinions and and get some help so that we can help these girls have a better adolescent and young adult and growing up experience. All right. So everyone take care and have a great week. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Autism and Neurodiversity with Jason and Debbie. If you want to learn more about our work, come visit us at jasondebbie.com. That's J-A-S-O-N-D-E-B-B-I-E.com. dot